Chapter 42 The Sick Nun At this time, one of the bhikkhus came over to us once a week and expounded the teaching. After some time, Angulimala's turn came. I did not go into the meeting hall on this occasion, but remained lying in my cell, and begged a neighbouring sister to say to him, Venerable Sir, Sister Varsity lies sick in her hut and cannot appear in the assembly. Will you, after the meeting, go to her and expound the Dharma also? And I should add that this pretext of sickness was not entirely untrue. The emotional torments which I had been experiencing had also taken their toll on my body, and I was regularly faint and feverish during these weeks. So, after his talk to the nuns, the good Angulimala and a companion came to my hut, greeted me deferentially, and sat down by my bed. You see here, brother, I said then, what none of us would desire to see. A lovesick nun. And you yourself are the cause of my sickness, seeing that it was you that robbed me of the object of my love. True, you have since brought me to this great physician who heals all life's ills, but now even his marvellous powers cannot help me. In his great wisdom he has recognised this and has given me a remedy to bring this fever to a crisis and so to get rid of the insidious germ of disease at present in my blood. As a result, then, you see me at this moment with a fever of longing raging within. So I wish to remind you of a promise that you once made to me. On that night, I mean, on which you sought to lead me into crime, the execution of which was only frustrated by the intervention of the Master. At that time, you promised to go to Ujjaini and bring me certain news of Carmenita, whether he still lived and how he was. What the robber once promised, that I now demand from the monk. For my desire to know whether Carmenita lives and how he lives, is such an overpowering one that, until it's gratified, there is no room in my heart for any other thought, any other feeling, and it's consequently impossible for me to take even the smallest step further forward on this, our way to enlightenment. For this reason it becomes your duty to do this for me, and to quiet my feelings by bringing me some definite information. After I'd spoken thus, Angulimala rose and said, It will be just as you require from me, Sister Varsity. As he spoke, I was unsure if his sense of duty was also coloured with a feeling of criticism for myself and for my weakness of spirit. However, he bowed low and, together with the bhikkhu who was his chaperone, he left my hut and disappeared into the darkness of the forest. The young nun who was my nurse cast her eyes to the floor and fanned me slowly. I lay back in silence, alone with my thoughts, feeling the sweat of the night upon my skin. Angulimala went straight to his hut to get his arms bowl, and in that same hour he left the Singsapa wood. People generally believed that he had simply gone on a pilgrimage following the master. I alone knew the true goal of his journey. This step once taken, I felt myself grow somewhat calmer, although haunted by a doubt as to whether I should not have given him some greeting or messages for my beloved. But it seemed to me unfitting and profane to use a monk in such a way, as a go-between while on the other hand he could perfectly well go to a distant city and give an account of what he had seen there. It would also be something quite other, I said to myself with secret hope, if he, acting on his own judgment and without being commissioned to do so, should decide to speak of me to my loved one. I will myself go to Ujjaini and bring him here safe and sound. These words resounded ever in my innermost heart. Would the monk be likely then to redeem the promise of the robber? Why not? if he himself were convinced that it was necessary for both of us to see and to speak with one another. And with that came a new thought, from which streamed an unexpected ray of hope that at first dazzled and then bewildered me. 
if my beloved should return, what was then to hinder my leaving the order and becoming his wife? When this question arose in my mind, burning blushes covered my face, which I involuntarily hid in my hands from fear that someone might just at that moment be observing me and know my thoughts. What a hateful misinterpretation such a course of action would be exposed to! Would it not look as though I had regarded the order of the Buddha simply as a bridge over which to pass from a loveless marriage into one of romantic fulfilment? My action would certainly be construed thus by many. But, when all was said and done, what could the judgment of others matter to me? And how much better to be a devoted lay sister who stood loyally by the Sangha than a sister of the order whose heart lingered elsewhere? Yes, even if Angulimala only brought me the information that my Carmenita was still alive, and I could gather from the account of their meeting that my loved one was still true to me in the faithfulness of his heart, then I would be able to make the journey to Ujjaini myself. And I pictured how I would, one morning, with my shaven head and my robes, stand at the door of your house, how you would fill my arms bowl with your own hands, and in so doing would recognize me, and then all the indescribable joy of our having found one another again. To be sure, it was a long journey to Ujjaini, and it was not seemly for a nun to travel alone but I did not need to seek long for a companion. Just at this time, Somadatta came to a sad end. His passion for the fatal dice had gradually enslaved him, and, after gambling away all his wealth, he had drowned himself in the Ganga. Medini, deeply distressed by her loss, now entered the Sangha too. It was perhaps not so much the religious life itself that drew her irresistibly to this sacred grove, as the need she felt to be always in my neighbourhood for her childlike heart clung with touching fidelity to me. And so I did not doubt that when I revealed my purpose to her, she would go with me to Ujjaini, yes, if need be, to the end of the world. Already her company was helping in many ways to rouse my spirits, and I, by offering comforting words, softened her genuine grief for the loss of her husband. As the time approached when Angulimala's return might be expected, I went every afternoon to the southwest edge of the wood and sat down under a beautiful tree on some rising ground, from which I could follow to a great distance with my eye the road he would be obliged to take. I imagined he would reach the goal of his journey towards evening. I kept watch there for some days in vain, but was quite prepared to wait for a whole month. On the eighth day, however, when the sun was already so low that I had to shade my eyes with my hand, I became aware of a form in the distance approaching the wood. I presently saw the gleam of a golden robe, and as the figure passed a woodcutter going homeward, it was easy to see that it belonged to a man of unusual stature. It was indeed Angulimala, alone. My Carmenita he had not, brought with him safe and sound. But what did that matter? If he could only give me the assurance that my loved one was still alive, then I would myself find the way to him. We met in the courtyard near the gateway to the Bikuni's section. Other sisters were passing to and fro, and I was embarrassed that they might divine the reason for our meeting. My heart beat violently when Angulimala finally stood before me and greeted me with courteous grace. Carmenita lives in his native town in great opulence, he said. I have myself seen and spoken to him. And he related how he had one morning arrived at your house, which was a veritable palace, how your wives had grossly abused him, and how you yourself then came out and drove them back inside, speaking to him in friendly and apologetic words. After he had related everything exactly, just as you know it, he bowed before me, threw his robe again about his shoulders, and turned around, as though he intended to proceed in the direction he had come from, instead of going to the monk's part of the forest. Much astonished, I asked whether he were not going to the great hall. I have now faithfully carried out your request, sister, 
and there is no longer anything to prevent my making my way to the east in the tracks of the master, towards Benares and Rajagaha, where I hope to find him. Even as he spoke, this powerful man started off with his long, easy strides along the edge of the wood without granting himself even the smallest rest. I gazed after him long and saw how the setting sun threw his shadow far in front of the crest of the hill on the horizon. Yes, to all appearances, even farther, as though his longing outran him in its vehemence, while I remained behind like one paralyzed, without a goal for longing to which I could send even one precious hope. My heart was dead, my dream dispelled. The sobering ascetic utterance, a crowded dusty corner is domestic life, echoed again and again through my desolate heart. On that splendid terrace of the sorrowless, under the open, star-filled and moonlit heaven, my love had had its home. How could I, fool, ever have thought to send it begging to that sluttish domesticity in Ujjaini, to be wife and problem number three in that already tormented house, and in order that quarrelsome women might attack it with their invective? I crawled back to my hut with difficulty, to stretch myself on a sickbed again. This sudden annihilation of my feverishly excited hopes was too much for my powers of resistance, already weakened by months of inner strife. With matchless self-sacrifice, Medini now nursed me by day and night. But as soon as my spirit, buoyed up by her tender care, was able to raise itself above the pain and inflammation of the fever, the plans I had formed for my journey developed in another direction. I wanted to make my pilgrimage, not to the place where I had sent Angulimala, however, but to the place where he now journeyed. I would follow in the footsteps of the master until I overtook him. Was I not done with my sentence? Had I not learned in the deepest sense that when love comes, suffering also comes? And so I might, I thought, seek the Buddha again and gain new life from the power of the Holy One in order to be able to press farther forward to the highest goal. I confided my intention to the good Medini, who at once adopted the unexpected suggestion with wild enthusiasm and painted in her childish fantasy how splendid it would be to roam through exquisite regions, free as the birds of the air, where migratory season calls them to other and far distant skies. Of course, for the first thing, we were obliged to wait patiently until I'd regained sufficient strength. And, just as that was accomplished to some extent, the rainy season began and imposed for our patience a still longer trial. In his last discourse the master had spoken thus, just as when in the last month of the rainy season, at harvest, the sun, after dispersing and banishing the water-laden clouds, goes up into the sky and by its radiance frightens all the mists away from the atmosphere and blazes and shines, so also, disciples, does this mode of life shine forth. It brings good in the present as well as in the future. It blazes and shines, and by its radiance it frightens away the fussing of common summoners and Brahmins. And when Mother Nature had made this picture a reality round about us, we left the Krishna grove at the gates of Kosambi, and, turning our steps eastward, hurried towards that sun of all the living. <laughs>